we've really seen a decline in the kind of relational infrastructure of our lives. And so when we find a place, as I know Mishkan is, where we can rebuild some of that, where we can extend our relational network, it's precious, but it's also tricky. Lashana <laughs> Tova. You are listening to Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan Chicago, exploring inspired, down-to-earth Judaism in conversation. Today, we continue our three-part series, Diving into the High Holidays. In this episode, Rabbi Stephen Philp, who is the newest addition to our rabbinic team at Mishkan, will be in conversation with his friend and sought-after writer, speaker, and deep thinker, Casper Turkile. Casper is the author of The Power of Ritual and the co-founder of the Sacred Design Lab, and the co-creator of the podcasts Harry Potter and the Sacred Text and The Real Question. He's a graduate of Harvard Divinity School and the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and his work has been featured in The New York Times, Vice, NPR, The Washington Post, on The Today Show, and on and on. Casper speaks and writes on community trends, ritual, and emerging spirituality. In this conversation, Rabbi Stephen and Casper discuss the power of convening in person, something so many of us have yearned for all year. And they talk both about the potential and the pitfalls in digital community gathering. As we look toward the high holidays, a time of communal atonement and reflection, we hope this conversation will leave you feeling inspired and curious about how to make your New Year experience as meaningful as possible and start considering who you might spend it with to make the most of that time. Here's the conversation. So I wanted to take a moment today to just talk a little bit about the idea of community, how communities help shape us, the importance of community, and the role that community can play in our lives as we prepare for the high holidays, but also just throughout the year, generally speaking. And I know that you um, are an author, a scholar, a thinker who deals a lot with how and why we form and shape communities. I thought that maybe as a a launching point, we could actually take a look at a piece of liturgy from the High Holidays, in particular, this prayer or set of prayers that we say um, throughout uh, both Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, but in Yom Kippur in particular, is when we uh, dive deeply into this liturgy of confession. And what I think is really interesting about this confessional liturgy um, is both that it is one of those pieces that brings us right into the moment. As soon as people hear, and I'm talking in particular about the Ashamnu, the die da die 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 da da die 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 da da die die die. People are like, it is the high holidays. There is no other time of year that you hear that melody, and then right from that that song, you launch into this long confessional of different transgressions, mistakes that one might have made throughout the year. But the interesting thing is that we do this in the communal we we speak in the in the first person plural about us all the things that we have done as a community and then we're also like kind of digging into our messy uh growing edges uh, aloud standing next to other people rather than doing this in the privacy of our own homes or um or you know in our own internal thought processes so i'm, I'm curious um uh, from your perspective is the idea of communal confession is this just like an accountability measure? Is this just uh, a way to make people feel really guilty about things they've done so they change themselves? Or is there is there something deeper here? Is there something deeper going on? 
Uh, well, first of all, clearly you asked me here for a reason because I'm all about communal confession. Um, I should say for, for our listeners, I'm not Jewish. So I, I am a, a great lover of Judaism, but I stand a little outside of it. Um, so I'm sorry I couldn't hum the melody with you, but I felt I felt that special moment. Um, so communal confession, I think, serves two, if, if not more, functions. The first is is one that you said is to you know, to confront us with our shortcomings. That's important. I think um, certainly if you have the ego that I have, uh, I love to think how great I am. And most of the time, it's a really wonderful gift <laughs> that I was given to just be like, you know what, I'm pretty great. Um, and so definitely people like me, you know, privileged in all sorts of ways, need to confront the places where, um, you know, I, I, I have contributed to harm, where I've fallen short of the commitments that I've made, where I've been part of systems of oppression uh, without challenging them. Um, to, to, to be confronted with that, I think, is, is a need. Um, and, and a ritual like this, like this does that very well. But the other thing that communal confession does is it helps us not get spiraled into shame. Because if we do it by ourselves, we can start to feel that, oh, there is no one else as bad as me. Like the things I have done are so disgusting and so wrong and so shameful. Like no one else is this bad. And and by doing it together, we're actually reminded that, yes, we all need to be confronted by the financial comings, but also we've all fallen short. And so in that, we can find solidarity Um, because so often once you're in the shame spiral, or my husband and I call it the doom spiral, right? Once once you're in it, you can't get out of it by yourself. At least I can't. And so th- that that sharing of that process, that sharing of that ritual is one way in which we can go to the very edge of seeing the limitations that we have without falling over the cliff, right? We can return from it together. So that's that that's some of what I would look for in those moments. That's what I'm hoping folks might feel on on in that holy moment. So, you know, it's interesting because I often think of ourselves as seeking out community to feel good. We gather together with people to celebrate birthdays. We love concerts and attending the theater and sharing these communal moments of celebration, of commemoration. Um, And even the uh, communal memorials that we do together are often about helping us feel a little better about a tough situation. Um, So I'm wondering, like, it's not like this moment isn't just about, okay, I've made some mistakes and it's okay because other people have made mistakes too, right? This moment is actually about doing the really messy work of holding ourselves accountable, mm. of, of reorienting, reorienting ourselves um, toward the person we want to be before the person we hope to be. Mm. Um, it's, you know, because I worry, I sometimes worry about these communal moments that are just about making us feel good about the fact that uh, maybe we've messed up and, um, but it's okay, other people messed up too. But, um, like, is it even possible to actually do like the messy transformational work of like, I've screwed up, um, other people screwed up too. Uh, we're going to yeah. get through this together, but it isn't like a, a, a hallelujah moment of like, okay, you have a clean slate now. It's a, okay, now we have to start the like low, slow, long, slow, hard process yeah. of, of transformation. Um, 
this, I mean, this word community is everywhere now and I'm grateful for it, right? Like you can't walk across a university campus without seeing a poster for belonging, right? Every company is talking about how its customers are a community. And so we're in a moment, I, I think of community washing. That's the first thing to say, right? Just like, you know, greenwashing was companies claiming all sorts of high environmental standards and actually not meeting them, right? Getting, getting the brand value of an environmental message without doing the actions of environmentalism. I'm a little worried that we're in that moment now, culturally, where everyone's talking about community, but it, it's it's not like everyone's doing community. Because as, as you say, community is not just fun, right? Like that would be a consumptive version of community where you just show up, have a good time, you know, you pay for it, you go home. Like real community is really, really unpleasant <laughs> some of the time, right? You have to be confronted, not just with your own shortcomings, but with other people's shortcomings and aren't they so much worse? Um, you have to constantly come up against um, collaboration and the extra time and effort that that implies rather than just doing something yourself or paying someone else to do it, right? Th th there are all sorts of um, barriers towards a, a rich community. Now, on the other side of that, lies a much richer experience of life, lies the true sharing of, of joy and sorrow, which, which ultimately is worth it. But we should, we should not be uh, uh, simplistic in what we mean by that word community. So that's, that's the first thing I would say. When it comes to then thinking about this word accountable that you've said a number of times, you know, accountability is inherently relational. Um, whether it's accountability to God, whether it's in accountability to our spouse, to family members, to, to our neighbors, to, to a broader civic uh, uh, society that we share, um, it's inherently relational. And so one of the things that's really important when we're thinking about accountability is like, well, to whom and how, right? Like, how are, how are you going to be held accountable? And so I think when we say aloud the things that we've, that we've failed to do or the ways in which we've harmed others, it's more real when it's heard by others. Now, they can, you know, uh, affirm that and say, I, I too have sinned, essentially, or maybe it's even in a context of, of harm, uh, uh, you know, for, forgiveness of harm. Maybe maybe you're seeking to make amends in one way or another. Um, but that word accountability is really important. One place that from, from my work where we've seen this in a surprising way, and I talk a lot about fitness communities because I think they're actually one of the places where accountability is done very, very well, um, is that they, uh, and CrossFit is one of the examples that I often point to, uh, one of the ways they build in a structure of accountability is a simple whiteboard in the workout space where people will write down their own goals. So like by the end of November, I want to be able to do 10, you know, pull-ups. God help you, I can't do that. But uh, you know, like, or whatever it is, or, or 20 burpees, or I want to run a mile in this kind of time. What I love about it is that it's you, you are given some agency in setting that goal, right? You know what's possible for your body, but you also know how you can stretch it. But it's written in public. And so suddenly this isn't just a, 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 you know, a note you've made on your phone or, or a reminder that you've set in your calendar. Like there's something public about the commitment that you've made. And when you make it, there is a community that celebrates you for doing it. And so that accountability isn't just, it's not just a technique of shame. It's actually a way in which we can express care for each other of saying, this is who you want to be. Let me help you become that person, right? And, and likewise, as an individual, you have to look around and say, what community do I trust to help me become the kind of person that I want to be? And so if you're showing up for the high holidays and, and you're offering this you know, th th this ultimately kind of humiliating moment of saying like, these are the ways I screwed up this year. 
it actually says a lot about the trust and the the willingness to be vulnerable with these people that that this is a community that I know can hold me and hold my shortcomings and in return I am responsible for holding and holding the shortcomings of of the other people in this community so I guess what I'm trying to say is it's a really precious and beautiful thing it's not a whip that you're going to strike to like hurt people with this idea of accountability it's a way in which we can express care for one another you know, I, I love the example you brought in for multiple reasons, both uh, because there is a strong uh, Peloton community here at Michigan, <laughs> um, of which, of which I am also part of. Um, and, uh, and I think that Peloton, similar to CrossFit, uses right, a lot of the similar accountability measures, um, is also there to celebrate you when you reach certain milestones. So you're both reaching for um, a new goal while also I think being hopefully supported and affirmed for uh, meeting those moments that you set for yourself. Yeah. Um, but I also love it because it matches really well with the idea of what we often translate as sin within the Jewish community, the idea of chet, um, mm-hmm. which is actually a word that comes from archery. It's missing the mark, right? It's a right. misdirected energy. It's not, it's not an inherent fault. Um, it's not sin in the uh, sense that we often think of through an English and Western lens. It's the idea that yeah. we we have this energy and potential that we could apply uh, to bettering ourselves and bettering the world, and we just have happened to misapply it, often unintentionally. Often we acted in a way that maybe was in our own best interest, or maybe we thought was in the best interest of other people, and in the end, it ended up falling short or missing the mark in some way. And I actually think that matches really well with this CrossFit, Peloton, Soul Cycle, et cetera, <laughs> model of accountability and community. It's not that uh, you are inherently flawed. It's just that you have all this potential and energy that you've been applying in one way. And here's a community of people, hopefully, who can help you transform and redirect that energy and that potential in a new way, in a way that is um, hopefully something that you also desire as well. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about um, the writing of a a wonderful Christian theologian, James K. Smith, who talks about the culture, the places that we go are all practicing liturgies. So whether you're in the mall, whether you're watching CNN, whether you're in a religious worship experience, we're always being formed in a certain direction. And I think it's such a helpful way for me to think about what kind of communities I want to be in, right? Whether it's a a forum online, whether it's, you know, the the kind of cafe that I'm in, like what what, what are the spaces that shape me to become the kind of person that I want to be? And who do I trust? Like, where are the values of this organization and its leadership? What are the... What are the things that really matter in life and where do they show up in this community? Uh, am I just there to be milked of my money? <laughs> you know, am I there because I, you know, people see in me something that is trustworthy and become, become generous or, or more courageous or more um, willing to, to take a stand on things that are, that are wrong in the world? That's the kind of community I would want to look for when I'm thinking about who's going to hold me accountable. And that also means modeling accountability. And, and I think that's what's really tough for community leaders because in so many ways, you you want you want to be right in front of the people that you lead, and you want to be trustworthy. But I, I I think that's what's so amazing when someone says, you know, I don't know the answer to that question, or I really screwed up here, and I'm so sorry. And here is what I'm going to do to make it right. Often, it's the most difficult moments in a community's lifespan when people really come together. Um, you know, I lived as a, as an RA for three years with 18 year olds, you know, freshmen entering the dorms. 
uh, at Harvard. It was great. I got to pay off my loans uh, while I looked after 18 year olds getting a little drunk now and then. But, you know, we had an, we had a horrific tragedy in, in the second year of the three years. And all three years, the group bonded well enough. And, we, we you know, we had a good time. But it was in that second year when when uh, a sibling of one of our students took their own lives. It was clear that there was a need that we could come around that the community really formed. I, I realized that I that I had more to give as a leader and that the community had more to give each other because someone really had a need that we could respond to. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that in, in those moments when things feel hardest as, as a community is actually the moments of real transformation. And, and, and um, yeah, those values become really real that are, are talked about and they become acted on. So I wonder, though, if there's a difference between a need that's presented that is a situation and, and the example you gave is, you know, God forbid that that is something that people have to experience. Um, but tragedy and loss is part of what it means to be human and is something that when we encounter it, our natural response is to be empathic, is to hold the person. But what about those moments when mm. I may be revealing a broken part of myself that is maybe a little less understandable? Maybe it's a, a mistake that I have made, some way that I have hurt somebody else, uh, ways that I've spoken ill of other people, ways that I have um, cheated or lied, even white lies. The, the list of, of yeah. sins, of mistakes, of transgressions that's included in that liturgy that I hummed along to earlier the Ashamnu are a list of mistakes that aren't about the losses that we experience in life, but are actually about the pain and brokenness that we cause in ourselves and in others. And so do you also feel like that kind of opening ourselves up, that that kind of sharing of our brokenness can also be a moment of transformation for community? Yeah. I mean, it can. <laughs> it isn't always. I think one of the things that's so hard about Twitter and, and you know, the, the, the public spaces digitally that so many of us now inhabit is that we have those revelations every day, right? About this person did this or that person, you know, did that. And there is a, a, a conversation of accountability that, that's very loud at the moment. But I think so often what's missing for me is, is that element of relationality within the, 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 the seeking of justice. And it is often both more painful to encounter, you know, someone's sins, right? The, the lies someone has told or the, the way someone has screwed up um, when you're close to it, right? Because there, there's also often a layer of betrayal or a, an extra level of pain. But there's also a greater capacity for forgiveness, I think, rather than, than something that feels very far away that's happening on the internet. And so if we're not able to find ways of re- Binding our communities when something has been broken, uh, if if we're not able to find our ways back to one another when when feelings have been hurt, if we can't do that in our communities, like how are we going to expect that to happen elsewhere? You know, I really want to be careful here because there are instances where it's not appropriate, right? Where if someone's in physical danger, you know, in, in various other ways in which which continued contact can be extremely harmful. So, again, let's let's find the right the right line to draw. But, you know, I, the place where I practice this most, if I can make it concrete, is with my colleagues. You know, I, I work together with a number of people in a kind of creative effort. I create a podcast with a dear friend, Vanessa Zoltan. I have two co-founders at, at Sacred Design Lab. And we, you know, annoy each other the whole time, right? Like I, I do something that they would want done differently or they 
say something, which I'm like, oh, no, don't say that. And the tools that I have found most helpful to rebind our relationship is the practice of covenant and is the, 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 the opportunity week in, week out at our team meeting to read aloud the commitments we have to one another and then to have a space afterwards to reflect together on where we have fulfilled our covenantal commitments and where we've fallen short. So immediately there's a place in time where I can bring something that was difficult for me at the same time where I open myself to receive something from my colleagues if I've done something wrong. And, you know, on a liturgical calendar uh, context, I, I think this ritual in some ways allows us to do that. It creates space in our lives to both confront and be confronted by the ways in which we've fallen short and others have hurt us. And it's such a rare and precious gift to have that time because each each time we practice it, it's a doorway back into relationship. It's a bridge to reconnection, to, to justice, to healing. And I'm so sad for people who don't have that in some way in their lives because I think if you don't experience it, you start to feel trapped in the worst version of who you are and you start to look at the world in the worst version that it is. And that is not the completeness of who we are or, or what the world is. So I'm honestly a little jealous I'm not Jewish right now. I'm not going to lie. Well, luckily for you, you are more than welcome to tune into or attend our high holiday services at Mishkan. That is my shameless plug for all of you listening. <laughs> yes. The thing that I really love about what you're saying is that it is about covenant. It is about relationship. It's not that we're setting up a tribunal um, before which each person is going to stand and say, I have sinned in this way and I've made this mistake and I've made this transgression. We are confessing to things that we have done either individually, either as a community, or that we've tolerated in other people, things that maybe we personally haven't done, but we know other people might have done. We're talking in the first person plural, uh, which I think has a profound difference from um, if I stood up in front of you and said, I've done this and I've done this and I've done this, or God forbid, you stand up and then point at people and say, you've done this and you've done this and you've done this. That's my family reunion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and how does that go? Not, not as well, maybe, as, as the other We don't do them anymore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, the beautiful thing about this Ashamnu moment, right, this, uh, this particular part of the Yom Kippur liturgy, is that we actually begin by prefacing that, you know, we are not so arrogant to think that none of us are, are free of transgression or mistake. That we, each of us, no matter, no matter how skilled we are, uh, thinking how amazing we might be, <laughs> that each of us uh, is admitting that maybe I get it right 99% of the time, but at least one out of 100 times, I make a mistake. And the reality is that all of us are probably somewhere in that nice 50-50 range. I was going to say, the, the, the more skilled we get, the better we get at, at seeing all the ways in which we screw up. So, uh, yes, it's definitely, definitely more than one out of 100. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And look, and the beauty, too, is, as you said, right, the, the, the power of community is then also pulling us back from the edge and saying, we're going to look at our brokenness together, but we are also going to remind ourselves of the potential for transformation of the capacity we have for change, of the promise of redemption that is so inherent to the Jewish tradition, but is also part of the larger human narrative as well, um, mm. and of the grace and love that exists out there, both whether you identify that as coming from God, whether that is coming to you from other people, and even the grace and love that 
can exist within yourself for yourself, the gentleness that you might be able to have. Totally. And and I just, I find it so hard to access that on my own. I, again, that brings me back to the community thing. I think that's, we need each other to be able to experience that. There's so much, you know, there's even a category of books, right? Self-help, but it's like, no, that's not, or at least it's only a tiny part of the puzzle, right? It's about community help. It's about communal healing. It, 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 it's not like you're sitting yourself down and, and suddenly healing yourself with, you know, magical <laughs> words that you're saying out into the ether. That That's just not how it works. And, and even if you think about going out into nature, for example, so many folks will talk about that experience of transformation or a sense of reconnection out in the natural world. Well, you know, the natural world is a living thing. Like we're still in community with life. Um, and so really kind of training our eyes or training our minds to see the ways in which when we experience transformation, it is happening in community, I, I think builds up a little bit of confidence that these rituals exist for a reason, uh, right? These have been tried and tested and true uh, generation after generation. And so, you know, we need each other. And that, that's what these rituals are there to do. You've reminded me of a really beautiful story that we have in the Talmud about a group of rabbis who um, are experiencing illness within their community. Mm. And you have this moment where Rabbi Yochanan, this amazing teacher and healer, goes and visits one of his students and offers his hand and helps him out of this moment of not only physical illness, but also despair and, um, and darkness. Mm. But then Rabbi Yochanan also falls sick. And the rabbis ask, well, can't he just heal himself, right? And he ends up actually needing another one of his students, another one of his teachers to come and to pull him out of that despair and darkness as well. And the answer is, mm. right, the prisoner cannot free themselves from jail. Mm. Um, that actually all of us, no matter how skilled we are, no matter how capable we are, no matter if we are normally the healers and counselors and comforters of our own community, that each of us also needs yeah. somebody else to reach out that hand and help pull us out of that moment. Um, and that's really, right, the importance of that communal relationship, that covenant that we built with each other um, to not only be present for each other when needed, mm. but also to recognize our own need to have others present in our life to help us as well. Yeah, oh, that's beautiful. So Casper, I'm curious, because you talked about, I think, the power of community to transform us, to hold us, to hold us accountable, and also to celebrate our achievements. Do you find that people are actually seeking out communities that challenge and transform them? Is there some sort of human need to not only be celebrated, but also be challenged and held accountable? This is really interesting. There's a lot of talk about, oh, I want community or like this experience of loneliness, right? The, the rates of loneliness and, and social isolation have gone up and up and up over the last few decades. And certainly experiencing COVID, I, I think more and more of us are familiar with that sense of, oh, I need other people around me. Like that is just a biological functional need that I have. But I think a lot of us are unpracticed in what it takes to be in community and to be confronted with, uh, you know, someone's smell that you don't like, or to be, you know, the way, the way they tell the same story over and over again, or they want to be the center of attention, or they, you know, they, they want to be in charge of everything. I just, not that I'm speaking from experience, um, I just joined a local community garden and put myself on the membership committee. Oh boy, did I come into contact real quick with all of the frustrations of what it takes to be in community. So that's a long way of saying, I think all of us are increasingly aware of the need and the desire. I think we are also unpracticed. And so 
one of the ways in which we might encounter the realities of community is to be like, I don't like this. This is too hard. I didn't sign up for this. I'm not going to be involved. And then we're very quickly back into the space of I'm lonely. I want to be with people. And I wonder if we can bring, you know, a little bit of a growth mindset to the practice of community. It is not a static thing. It's not like a lake that you dive in and then you're done with the lake and you go home, right? Like it's a living organism of which you are then a part. And so to think of it more as as a musical instrument or something that you need to practice in order to get better at. I think that's how we should think about relationships and community because it, it, it doesn't just happen. It doesn't just exist for you to go and partake of. You have to contribute to it and you have to do, do the hard work that it, that it takes to be part of it. Again, knowing that the promise of community is in the moments when we really, when we really need other support, people are there with chicken soup. People are there to make a minion or to sing a song or to, to just watch, you know, Gilmore Girls on repeat with, you know, Hagen does ice cream. That's that's when you see the fruits of community. Often in in the in the in between moments, it can feel like like work. And one of the things I'm really interested in my work at the moment is looking at what are the drivers that have weakened our relational thread, or the kind of the the web of relationships that have so drastically diminished. There's so much data out there about the average number of people that we have in our homes for dinner in a year has you know gone down uh, threefold since the 1970s the number of people who uh, number of americans who say that they have no one to talk to about the things that are most meaningful to them 25% and that includes spouses family members so we've really seen a decline in the kind of relational infrastructure of our lives and so when we find a place as i know mishkan is where we can rebuild some of that where we can extend our relational network it's precious but it's also tricky. <laughs> but I guess what I, I hope everyone experiences and not just remembers is, is that it's worth it. The beauty of the idea of community as practice is that you don't have to be good at it right away. I think that's what, right, that's what turns us off so often, as you said, is we go and we don't fit in right away and we are confronted with the weirdness and awkwardness and uh, growing edges of all the other people around us. Um, both those that are uh, new to us and those that maybe remind us a little too much of ourselves. And we then go home and say, well, that's not for me. And then the loneliness kicks in again. And we, you know, it's like the cycle that happens over and over again. Um, The beauty of thinking of community as a practice is that it's okay to dip your toe in. It's okay to build up our resilience, our um, ability to navigate those spaces over time. And all the ways that you mentioned that we normally would practice community very beautifully are different spiritual technologies that Judaism and so many other religious communities offer. The idea of having people in our homes, right? We're talking about Shabbat dinners, the idea of coming together in moments of crisis. We're talking about Shiva Minyan, the idea of coming together to celebrate and to sing. We're talking about Shabbat, right? There's all these small ways that our traditions give us the ability to practice community step by step. It's not about trying all these things out at once is something I I often tell my introduction to Judaism and conversion students. It's okay, right, to try things out bit by bit to build up a practice to figure out what are the aspects of community and communal engagement that makes sense for me and allow yourself the permission and the possibility for community to be a journey, for community to be something that grows and changes over time in response to what your needs are at the moment, 
how you're feeling, what your tolerance is for other people's weirdness, how much time you need for yourself versus how much time you can give to others to give ourselves the permission to not have to show up 100%, 100% of the time. That's right. You're also reminding me, you know, one of the great gifts, I think, especially at religious communities today, is it's one of the few spaces that you can enter easily to find intergenerational relationships. Uh, you know, certainly, you know, I'm in my mid thirties. It's very easy to move through the world and be with other people of, of the same age group broadly. And it is a delight and sometimes a little bit of a, um, a confrontation to remember like, oh, this person is in their seventies and may need a different kind of seat rather than sitting on the floor. You know, like this person is three years old and needs a nap time now. <laughs> and it's, it, it's those contours of life and the, the extended yeah, familial feeling that we can have in those intergenerational spaces that I think really contribute to feeling at home in a place. So I'm thinking, especially of people who maybe you know newer to Chicago or, or, or you know in a, in a situation where their age group is really kind of monocultural. Yeah, one of the great gifts of, of community is to find those relationships of difference. At, at its best, communities are also you know places where you have multiracial relationships, multi-class relationships. Uh, that's that's real difficult, but it's real beautiful when it when it does work. And it's I think it's one of the the real gifts that religious communities have to offer our society now because it's very rare to find it elsewhere. Absolutely. I think the idea of communities where the doors are open um, and allow us to come as we are, are rare. Even those communities that purport to be that way, there's often a level of buy-in or of expectation, right, that maybe prevents us from accessing those spaces, especially if we're trying to build a practice of community from the ground up. And that's really the beauty of a religious community. Well, I appreciate you being part of my extended community. I am so grateful that you are now and hopefully will always be in the orbit of Mishkan's extended community as well. I look forward to being able to host you hopefully soon in Chicago. You are always welcome to tune in or come to uh, our services if you feel the need for some communal confession. But thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time today. I'm so grateful, Rabbi Stephen, and and so glad to, to see you entering this new chapter of your life in Mishkan. You've been listening to Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan Chicago, a Jewish spiritual community and part of the Jewish Emergent Network. This was the second in a three-part series brought to you by the rabbis of Mishkan to help you prepare for the high holidays. Next week, be sure to tune in for a conversation between Rabbi Dina Cowens and her guest, Rabbi Stephanie Rusquet, who is the associate dean of the rabbinical school at the Jewish Theological Seminary, as they talk about justice, hope, and recommitting to our values this fall. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to join us for the High Holidays this year in person at the Chicago History Museum or online through our live stream. You can find more information about our programs at mishkanchicago.org and follow us on Instagram or Facebook and be totally up to date. To support Contact High, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love your reviews and they help improve our ratings, which helps new listeners find the show. Finally, this episode was produced by our fabulous team at Mishkan. Editing and production of this podcast is by Hannah Rehack, administrative assistance by Seth Torres, editorial oversight by the Director of Communications at Mishkan, Ashley Donahue. Thanks for listening, and L'Shana Tovah!